Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome to Books, Books, Books two great Australian social activists, Dr. Meredith Bergman, AM, feminist and academic, and award-winning writer Nadia Wheatley, to talk about the book that they've written together, Radicals, Remembering the 60s, published earlier this year by New South Publishing. To give you a bit of an introduction to my two guests, I'll start with talking about Dr. Bergman. Meredith started her career lecturing in industrial relations at Macquarie University and was a political science academic for 20 years. Then in 1991, she was elected to the New South Wales Upper House and in 1999, she became the first Labor woman president. Since leaving politics, she has been president of the Australian Council for International Development and a consultant for the UN Development Programme. She's also a patron and a board member of a number of organisations. Meredith has edited and co-authored three books on misogyny, green bands and ASIO, She was an early member of the women's liberation movement and very active in land rights, anti-apartheid and green bands campaigns, some of which we'll be hearing about today. In 2020, Meredith was awarded a member of the Order of Australia in the Australian Day Honours List for significant service to the people and Parliament of New South Wales. Meredith has been arrested on many occasions. Meredith, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you, Nicole. Now, Nadia Wheatley. Nadia is a very well-known Australian writer who's written novels, biography, history and memoir, as well as a number of significant children's books. She's won many literary awards, including in 2002, the New South Wales Premier's History Award for the Life and Myth of Charmian Clift, the only biography to win the History Award. And I need to interrupt at this stage to say I read that book when it came out and it remains one of my favourite books ever. So for those of you listening, I really highly recommend that beautiful book to you. From 1998 to 2001, Nadia was invited to work at the school at Papunya, an Aboriginal community in the Northern Territory. She worked together with students, staffs and elders, helping them to tell the story of the history of the community in the multi-award winning book, the Papunya School Book of Country and History. In 2014, Sydney University awarded her an honorary doctorate of letters Her most recent book before this one is her memoir called Her Mother's Daughter, which was out in 2018. And in the 1960s, she was nearly expelled from Sydney University for throwing a tomato. We're going to (laughs) hear a bit more about that later on as well. Nadia, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you, Nicole. So I'm going to start with some questions for both of you before I move to individual questions. And I'm going to start by asking you, Nadia, what does the word radical mean to you? Well, I'm a bit of a word pedant, um, so I go back to the Latin, which in Italian I would pronounce radice. So it just, like the word radish, it just means um, root, not in the sexual sense, but in the vegetable sense. So it's any idea or movement that goes back to 
the roots. So another way of saying it, a bit of a scary way, would be to connect it with the idea of going back to the beginnings or the fundamentals of something. But I always stress that in the 60s, we were into fun rather than fundamentalism. So the kind of radicalism we were into um, was a new left version of the left. So we got away from the old Soviet-style communism and read the younger Marx and went back to the idea of grassroots community organisation. So our radical roots were very much grassroots. Meredith, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, yes, except uh, Nadia might have been re reading the younger Marx, but I didn't read very much at all. <laughs> I just listened a lot to the people around me and, you know, sang the songs and got involved in the zeitgeist. I'd like to set the scene as you have in each of your um, your personal chapters in this book by asking each of you a little bit about your background prior to when you started, both of you at Sydney Uni in 1966. Meredith, I'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and your background. Well, I always... Uh, claim that I was born and bred in the most boring suburb in Sydney, um, Beecroft. And then uh, about halfway through my childhood, we moved to the second most boring place in Sydney, which is Cheltenham, the, the close suburb. Um, it's basically, it wasn't the North Shore, certainly wasn't the Eastern suburbs. It was incredibly respectable, unbelievably boring. And in fact, absolutely monocultural. I did not meet, I did not even talk to a Catholic until I got to university because we were only Protestants in uh, in Cheltenham. There's no Catholic church in, in, in Beecroft or Cheltenham. Um, and so to me, getting to university was an extraordinary liberation um, because I, met, I remember coming home from university and saying to mum, there are all these Catholics at university. And she said, oh, yes, there's a lot of Catholics in the world, dear. And, and strangely, it was the young Catholics that I met at uh, university um, from the Newman Society, which I, I suppose I should go back and say I came from a very religious upbringing, a high church Anglican upbringing. My grandfather was the sort of, I suppose, Christian socialist bishop of uh, Canberra and Goulburn uh, and was very political. And, and very left-wing, but, of course, I didn't know that at the time because in Beecroft you certainly wouldn't talk about your left-wing ancestor. And, Meredith, um, your mother's politics were quite conservative, weren't they? Mum was a country party girl, of course, coming from Taralga uh, in western New South Wales, and um, so I just assumed my father's politics were the same because he didn't say much. He was a very reserved, very kind, lovely person. But uh, I grew up believing that Sir Robert Menzies was a great man and um, and that Arthur Caldwell was a little bit common, I think was the expression that was used. So, and really I arrived at university with quite um, conservative views. And my mother later, of course, she was became horrified by Vietnam, horrified by apartheid and ended up being a convinced Whitlamite and her politics really changed during the whole period. And, of course, I never had a rebellion. That The idea that the 60s was about young people rebelling against their parents, in, in many of our cases, we dragged our parents along with us or there was just a comfortable, um, 
love. I mean, there was real love in my family. So, of course, we didn't really even argue uh, argue about these things. I remember my mother saying, dear, I really don't want you being arrested for bad language. So I promised and, in fact, delivered on that. I was never arrested for bad language. So, as I say, I came out of a comfortable but conservative background. My father was a um, secret Labor voter, but very secret because you'd certainly not talk about it in um, in Beecroft and Cheltenham. I was head girl of Abbotsley, but more importantly, I was captain of cricket, which to me was very important. I was a sports nut. I played cricket, hockey and tennis and really didn't think about much else. I'm going to cut to you now, Nadia, and ask you about your childhood, which was very different from Meredith's, I know. Tell us a bit about your childhood. Well, in one way, it might be seen as similar to Meredith's because I too came from a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, indeed, Anglican upbringing, um, and I too went to a single-sex private school. Um, but my family was very different from Meredith's. I actually, I knew Meredith's parents quite well and I loved them. They were wonderful people. Um, I had a wonderful mother, but unfortunately she was very ill from the time when I was six until I was nine. And when I was nine, she died. And I ended up um, in the kind of informal fostering arrangement in a foster family. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, my father, who was a cold sadistic and bullying man had disappeared um, and in the foster family I was very unhappy. I felt bullied um, and also abused, very mm. much controlled, silenced and disempowered and that was partly the mindset of the 50s so I was not allowed to know what my mother had died of, uh, the date of her death and I was not allowed to express any grief or anger. So when I arrived at university and I was only 16, I was like a dog that's been let off a leash. I ran wild for a couple of years, but that was just general wildness, going to the pub and drinking too much. It wasn't until 1968 when I went on my first demonstration that I found um, an outlet. Meredith and Nadia, how did you first meet each other? Tell us about that. Well, well, I, I went into um, women's college in my second year at university because I hadn't done terribly well in my first year because I'd been a bit too involved in, you know, I was in the drama society and I was playing table tennis and having a good time. Um, so I ended up in women's college uh, to discover a very different society to what I would have been having at, at university. It was uh, the, the women, were, the, the girls there were, were nice, but they were very interested in clothes and fashion and the, the uh, college boys around them. And I found the college boys around them, uh, well, you know, they still are to this day. There's a very misogynistic culture in, in, in those uh, old colleges. Um, so I was, I used to stay up all night uh, thinking I was working. I wasn't. I was doing English honours and I wasn't very good at it. I never really understood poetry. Uh, I loved the books, but I really was terrible at poetry and I was struggling with John Donne, or all the romantics, in fact, one night about four o'clock in the morning. We, we used to, I used to stay up until we heard the, a garbage truck come around and then we'd go to bed. Um, and I heard this clomp, clomp, clomp outside my uh, door and I, opened the door and there was Nadia wearing a long red uh, nightie 
and gumboots. <laughs> and uh, I was so pleased that it wasn't one of the college boys, uh, you know, attacking my room that I invited her in and she was looking for toast, might I say, which is what you tended to do late at night. Um, and I invited her in and she started helping me with the uh, romantics the, and um, was very helpful with my English honours <laughs> progress from then on. I'd like to ask you about the time when you each of you became radicalised. Nadia, can I ask you, can you pinpoint a particular date, a particular event that for you was really a turning point in, in that way? Yes, so we'll fast forward from that um, first get-together, the toast-eating experience of 1967, and we'll go to Wednesday the 19th of June 1968. And... My world was very much the world of um, English literature. I didn't read the newspaper. I didn't watch television. I think I was in escape and retreat from the world. So I was vaguely aware there was some place called Vietnam and there was some thing going on there, uh, but I wasn't involved in politics at all. I was at lunch on a diet, no doubt, nibbling on a lettuce leaf, and Meredith came in and she'd been at a front lawn meeting and there was going to be a vigil downtown outside the office of the Minister for Labor and National Service, who was the Minister in Charge of Conscription. And Meredith mentioned this and said, would anyone like to go along? And without any thought, I actually heard my voice saying, oh, come. Um, to be fair, if Meredith had suggested going to the pub, I would have also said, I'll come. Um, so very soon we were down at the bus stop in City Road, catching a bus to Martin Place, and on the way down, Meredith hastily filled me in. I think we're up, the French were still in Indochina by the time we got <laughs> to Martin Place. And then we found, I did, didn't really know what a vigil, vigil was, but it was decided that we would all go up to the office of the Minister for Labor and National Service. So 92 of us, I know from the newspaper reports, sat in mm. in the foyer um, outside the Minister's office. Of course, the Minister wasn't there but the and the office staff got an early mark and went home early. So we just all sat around and sang, we shall not be moved until um, the police arrived. The police arrived, arrived yeah. Yeah. Again, I hadn't put any thought into this. I It was very easy to understand that I was against conscription. I didn't really know enough to be against the war in Vietnam at that stage, though within a couple of days I'd read Gettleman on Vietnam and I was. Um, the policeman read the Crimes Act, whereby it was illegal to oppose, basically to take an act against conscription. And the patriarchal authority figure of the policeman told us that if we remain sitting in this office, we would be liable under the Crimes Act to two years' jail. Now, now, how did that make you feel? Did that fill you with fear, the thought that, that jail was actually a prospect? It triggered resistance because in my foster family I'd been constantly getting into trouble for things like leaving a sock under the bed and I was just sick of being controlled and told what to do. And to sit on, to be sent to jail for sitting on a floor in a public office in the afternoon before 5 o'clock was ridiculous. And so I had no question in my mind. I did believe that I could go to jail for two years, but that didn't bother me. I was just so sick of being told what to do. Of course, once the police dragged us out um, and in the lift and threw me like a minnow into, a fat minnow into Martin Place, I realised that we weren't going to be arrested. 
But the sense of liberation I got actually from making that decision, taking an act, mm. um, utterly changed my life. Meredith, what was the galvanising moment for you? Can you put your finger on one particular um, activity, one particular moment that you on your path to radicalism? <laughs> I can put my finger on a moment, but unlike Nadia, who has this amazing chronological mind, I'm not quite sure when it was, but I had become increasingly worried about the war in Vietnam. Strangely, I wasn't so angry about conscription. It, to me, it was about we were sending young men off to a country to kill and be killed, and and they were the government was doing this in my name, and and I was very distraught about the the deaths and and the the bombings, and and I mean, Vietnam was an all-consuming passion. It takes it really rides over the whole of the 60s and into the 70s, the war in Vietnam. So I was getting increasingly upset by this um, and not quite knowing how to fit it into my, uh, the, the, the way in which I'd thought about the world where you had, you know, Robert Menzies up the top, uh, the all-seeing, all-wonderful, patriarchal Robert Menzies. But I was, I was sift obviously sifting it through in my brain because I remember waking up one morning at, at when I was uh, at still living in Beecroft and um, thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm a socialist. And I and I took the train into Yumi and I remember racing down the uh, corridor in the old McCallum building and seeing my friend Jeff, Jeff Robertson, um, now later of, you know, hypotheticals fame, et cetera, um, and I said, Jeff, Jeff, I, I, I'm a socialist. And he just said, oh, don't be silly, Meredith, we're all socialists. <laughs> and I was totally flattened by this, but it it it, it was it, it had obviously been seething away underneath. But it, it really was a a one day moment. I'd like to ask you a little bit then about the decision to write this book, Nadia. Whose idea was it? How did the idea come to you? Well, again, I'm going to give you places and dates. It was January 2016. Meredith came over to my place for dinner. Um, we were actually talking about um, radicalism and the way the word was being used now quite often for right-wing radical movements, which um, the word does apply to them um, if they're going back to the roots. Um, but we wanted to keep that sense of the word as a left-wing word and maybe I, maybe Meredith put the idea of you know, let's do a book about the 60s, but from the start it was always going to be about comrades. It was always going to be about other people, not just to be about us. And I can remember when, um, you know, I, I was maybe getting um, cold feet because I know how much work there is in any book and I had a couple of other projects on and suggested, oh, should we do a book about the 60s? Meredith saying, well, if we don't, someone else will. Um, and that was very much an inspiration to do it. And so we quite quickly mapped out the terms, which would be that we would together interview people, but we would separately write up the story. So it's not oral history on the page um, and it's not an edited book. Um, it's a series of stories about people's radicalisation experiences with our own stories woven through. So, Meredith, with you two included, there are 20, you two are the writers, there are 18 other participants who, between you, you interviewed. And I know that you are very careful to select people from a broad range of occupations and a relatively broad um, political spectrum. 
Would you like to talk a little bit about that, how you chose the participants? Well, some of them chose themselves. Um, we were, uh, what we wanted, though, was to look at the radicalisation experience. And so we needed to choose uh, participants from conservative backgrounds. Otherwise, if they, they were from their parents were well-known communists or something like that, it really wasn't such an interesting exercise. Um, and we wanted a good geographic uh, spread. We, want, we wanted to have um, a number of First Nations um, people because we, we both had been very involved with land rights issues and things like that. So we, and we wanted, you know, obviously we needed um, uh, people with a migrant experience. Um, we wanted as many women as possible, and that's good. We've got eight of the 20 uh, are women. Um, and as I said, a geographic uh, spread. So we've got them from Adelaide, Melbourne, Brisbane, Townsville, uh, Canberra, uh, quite a few from Sydney. And as we went along, we recognised that there were gaps in what we were doing. Uh, and we made a decision about halfway through, which I thought was really important, which we didn't want it just to be political radicalism. We wanted to look at what was happening in the 60s, what we call from time to time the zeitgeist, because it's really hard to describe it otherwise. So that's when we looked at the cultural radicalism and um, uh, we went down to Canberra and interviewed Vivian Binns, the very exciting uh, radical feminist um, artist, still is in her 80s. Uh, we interviewed uh, John Derham, who was an actor and was very much radicalised by the English playwrights, the anti-war playwrights of the 60s, you know, John Osborne, John Arden, even Spike Milligan, and, of course, the Emerald Hill Theatre in, in Melbourne, which was bringing those plays to Australia. Uh, and, and we interviewed, and I had to write up, uh, we interviewed um, LSD Fogg, the, uh, well, I always thought he was just a light and mist machine, but he was actually a person called Roger Foley who was into that, uh, the sort of happening experience of, uh, and he wanted to talk about the murmuration of starlings and string theory and uh, some Japanese philosopher that I'd never heard of. It, I found that chapter very challenging to write about, but we thought we really had to look at those experiences. We we interviewed um, Robbie Swan, who when we asked him, well, what was your radicalising experience? And he said, oh, drugs. So then I had to, and he, of course, was into transcendental meditation and that sort of stuff. Um, interestingly, they, they all had a political bent because in the 60s you really couldn't get away from you were either for or against Vietnam and that decided you. Um, but I did find the cultural uh, um, participants quite demanding but really exhilarating to talk to. Let's talk now about each of your individual chapters on, on incidents in your own life. Meredith, I'm going to come back to you on this. So, you started at Sydney Uni doing a degree in English honours. You ended up changing that. We mentioned before that you had attended the exclusive private girls' school at Abbotsley. You were head girl there in 1964. But you say that you never really fitted in. Why not? And I was wondering, were the seeds of rebellion always there within you? And then they were, I'm going to mix my metaphors here now, but they were um, 
then realised or released in once you got to university in the 60s? Look, I've often thought about that too. Um, I had, we'd ha- I'd had a year off, um, well, my, my father was working in Europe, so the, what would have been my first year at high school, uh, I spent in um, Europe with my family. And my parents didn't send me to school, so goodness knows why. Um, so I just spent the year thinking about things, reading a lot of George Bernard Shaw, I remember, going to see the plays at Drury Lane. You could get in for a shilling, I remember, in the and sit up in the bleachers. So I was I was a bit I was quite a thoughtful kid, but also very sport obsessed. Um, and why I felt I didn't fit in at Abbotsley was strangely because I lived on the main line and not on the uh, North Shore line. And I've discussed this with my school friends since, and they've seen that as a bit weird, except for the ones that lived on the main line. There were about a dozen of us. And we all said, yes, we always felt we didn't fit in. The main line is it goes from the city through um, Strathfield up to Hornsby. It's not very fashionable. Also, I was... I just always looked terrible as a school kid. I had, you know, bad skin, fizzy hair and um, was obviously never going to be the swish sort of Abbotsley girl that, you know, went out with King School boys and if they couldn't get a King School boy, a Barker boy. Um, and I just didn't fit into that sort of social milieu. Um, whether I was an incipient uh, uh, renegade Look, I'd like to think so, but I'm not sure. I, I just knew I didn't fit in. The interesting thing is that it was Betty Archdale, the famous, uh, herself a renegade, headmistress of Abbotsley. She was captain of the, of the English women's cricket team, and that was what everyone knew her for. But what you find out when you read her uh, uh, biography is that she was the daughter of a very well-known suffragette. Her tutors were um, uh, Adele and... Um, the other um, Pankhurst, the other daughter Pankhurst, I can't remember. She so she came to uh, Abbotsley with a suffragette background, mm. and no one ever talked about it because you know for a North Shore school in the nineteen sixties that would be considered a bit uh, a bit awful. Um, so so Archie must have seen something in me, um, which <laughs> which I didn't see in myself at the time. When you started at Sydney University in 1966, you've described that as a huge liberation for you. I'd like you to talk a little bit about some of the people that you met and the organisations that you became involved with. Well, I I think I've always been a fairly busy girl and I was able to be sort of busy writ large. I uh, became very involved with uh, SUDS, the Drama Society, and I remember being shocked because they used um, swear words as a good... Anglican from Beecroft had not really even heard. Um, so that was great fun. I was playing table tennis for the university very seriously. Um, I got involved with the Student Representative Council. Uh, I'm not even, I think because my sister had been a bit, a bit involved with them, but she'd already really left by this stage because she left to go to Papua New Guinea. And it was those, it, it was the folk on these uh, Students' Council that I realised that I'm, they're still my friends. There were people like Geoffrey Robertson, Jim Spiegelman, who later became, you know, Chief Justice, um, uh, Alan Cameron, uh, Richie Walsh, even Liberals like Nick Greiner and 
Peter Collins, uh, Michael Kirby, of course, he was our student senator. I also got involved with Onisoir. I I became, I think I used to write sports entries for Onisoir. So I was pulled into a milieu that was obviously thinking about political things, probably before even I was. But the crew that actually ended up, I think, changing my mind on Vietnam were the young Catholics. I was a little bit involved with SCM, the Student Christian Movement, which is sort of the Protestant bunch. I might add that I'm now an atheist, but at the time I was struggling with all that. And the young men from the Newman Society were, and it was mainly men, were somehow the people who influenced my thinking about Vietnam. And I always thought that was terribly funny, the young Protestant girl from Beecroft ending up being radicalised by a bunch of young Catholics. And it was through that interest you became obviously increasingly opposed to Australia's involvement in that war. And in 1968, you took part in your first anti-war demonstrations. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, including um, reference to your first arrest. I've always said that 1968 was the high point of my life and it's been a downhill run ever since. Whenever I say that to someone of a certain age, they all go, oh, yes, 1968 was my year too. But when you look at everything that was happening internationally and in Australia in 1968, so much happened. And by 1968, I was totally opposed to that step of going down to a demonstration. But in the middle, towards the middle of the year, I realised I had, I was so opposed to Vietnam. Every night we'd come home and see it on our boxy little televisions, the, the death and destruction and the, the, the horribleness. We were shown dead bodies on television, which for the, for the first time, I think it was the first time that, that this ever happened, and it was quite horrible. So I think I was just compelled by the issue that I had to go down and be at the demonstration. And, and I remember asking... Uh, did anyone want to come with me? And that was when <laughs> Nadia and we've been great friends ever since, really. Another cause that you were passionately involved with was the anti-apartheid movement. And in fact, in 1971, 50 years ago now, you spent time in prison for running onto the Sydney <sighs> cricket ground during the Springboks tour. Could you tell us about that experience, please? Yes, well, in 19- I'd been always been very interested in South Africa and about apartheid. I'd as a Kid, I'd read Alan Payton, um, Cry the Beloved Country, and I'd read out the Latulu and um, Trevor Huddleston. I'd read all the classics about apartheid. And um, and racism had always been something that I'd, I'd grown up being very opposed to. And um, so I, in 1969, I was elected um, co-convener of the anti-apartheid movement and especially a campaign called Stop the Tours campaign. I was the co-convener. And so but we started demonstrating against the various all-white racially selected teams from South Africa that were coming to Australia. And we always knew that our target was the Springboks, who were the rugby union team that was coming in the middle of 1971. So I was pretty well... Um, known by the police at this stage and I can tell from my ASIO file that they were following me. They they were they were sitting in cars outside my house waiting to um, follow me. So I I was being arrested at uh, you know I got arrested when we demonstrated against the surf lifesavers and the basketballers and so on. So uh, I knew that I'd have to be 
pretty canny to get anywhere near the footballers. So we, um, for the first um, match in Sydney, we dressed up as what we thought um, middle-aged Afrikaners would wear. This is probably the photograph they'll show on my obituary when I die. On, on the ground with the curly wig. And with the dreadful clothes because we, I was wearing a long-knitted cardigan and I had to wear it. I wore a, a red curly um, wig to, so that I looked different. And a group of us uh, went in, we borrowed members' tickets and went in to the members' area because there were 20,000 demonstrators at, at, at the ground, but most of them were in the non-members' area where there were huge high, 10-foot-high um, barbed wire fences to stop uh, any incursion onto the ground. But we sat there pretending to be Afrikaners uh, or what we thought was an Afrikaner accent and we actually, uh, just after half time, said to the police standing in front of us, because there were police every yard or so uh, in front of us, and we, we asked them to step stand aside because we couldn't see the game properly. And these police did stand aside. So just after half time, um, I and my sister Verity and uh, two friends uh, jumped over the fence and ran onto the ground. And we were the only demonstrators to actually stop the game during the Australian tour. And uh, when we got into the middle of... We were so surprised that we got into the middle of the ground because it never occurred to us that this would... We th but the police were obviously shocked at these middle-aged Afrikaners running onto the ground. So um, Verity actually grabbed the ball and kicked it and the bulletin called it the best kick of the season. Um, I didn't know what to do, so I just lay down in front of the, uh, the scrum and Ralph, uh, Ralph Pierce, uh, just ran around like a frightened rabbit and uh, the, poli the police eventually got into the... It seemed like hours before they arrived, but it was obviously, you know, a couple of minutes. They arrived in the centre of the ground and they dragged me off and the, there's lots of newspaper photographs of me being dragged off the ground uh, and strangely, I don't know, it's a very funny story, one of the policemen who dragged me off was so proud of that moment and the photograph that appeared in the front page of the papers that he actually had it on the front page of his funeral program uh, in Goulburn many, many years later. My, my cousin came in holding this thing saying, hey, have you seen the front page of Senior Constable X's Funeral program. Thank you, Nadia. I'll, I'll go to you now and ask you a bit about those early years for you. So you were doing an honours in history, at Sydney University. No, I was doing initially English honours, but I switched to history honours after the crucial year of 1968. Yes. And I have to ask you something that you've included in this book in your biography that I just have to ask you about is that you were once charged with malicious damage to salmon volovants, and that landed you in prison. For 12 days. Tell us that story. Well, this is a, that was actually a little bit out of the 60s, but it doesn't matter that it's beyond our time frame because, of course, radicalisation hopefully is a lifelong project. Um, so in the early 1980s, I was unemployed during um, a period when Malcolm Fraser was Prime Minister and the unemployed were suffering greatly under this man who said life wasn't meant to be easy. And I was a member of a group small group called the Unemployed People's Union, which had very, very inventive pro 
pro um, demonstrations. So we didn't have the numbers, but we'd always do something quite exciting, like run a dog bludges picnic or run a soup kitchen and throw soup at the Liberal Party. So this was the 21st birthday of the Liberal Party was being held at the Roundhouse New South Wales. And someone had announced that we were going to get in and disrupt the dinner. And I said, oh, blow, you know, I'm going to have to do this because no one's going to do it. And you can't promise to do something like this and then not deliver. So I knew that it's like Meredith with the anti-apartheid thing. I knew there'd be a big police presence. So I dressed up as a waitress, not as an Afrikaans, but a waitress. Um, men don't look at women who look plain. So I made my hair scrunched back. I put on an old shirt. I didn't have a black skirt, but I cut up a black petticoat, made myself a black and white waitress uniform and um, got through the police circle of quite a few hundred police completely surrounded the, the roundhouse got in and I attached myself to a couple of other young waitresses and said, you know, my supervisors put me on and I'm new on the shift and what do I do? And, and then I got into trouble from the supervisor for being late. I had with me a comrade called Paddy Dawson had gone to the Manly Magic Shop and he bought a product called Strong Pong, which smells terrible and also had a couple of flares. And so as I was walking around um, offering the guests, the Liberal Party, um, their hors d'oeuvres, I was sprinkling just openly onto their lapels um, from this little bottle, this stuff called Strong Pong, which doesn't instantly smell, but after a while it does have a strong aroma. What does it smell like? Oh, poo. But they thought I was just sort of like a Thai air hostess putting a nice scent on them or something. So I wandered around for a while with my strong pong. You're always um, wondering how long you're going to last before you get grabbed on this sort of occasion. And as Meredith has explained, time goes very strange and it seems to go for very long time. And I thought I would have to do something um, before the speeches because I wouldn't last that long. I was looking, they were getting a bit suspicious. So the guests had taken their seats and the waiters came out with um, big trolleys with salmon volovants on them and each all the salmon volovants were on trays. So it was very easy to actually just grab a trolley and then start moving my hand along and have salmon volovants flying everywhere. And, of course, they're rather messy because there's all this salmon mornay in the centre. And you could just go swish, swish, swish and have 500 salmon volovants floating through the air. It took a long time for the police to arrest me because they had to come in from outside. I ran around inside the roundhouse for quite a while. I was taken to the kitchen. Were you were the only activist there on that occasion? Yeah, I was totally alone. And the chef was nearly crying and he said to me, I've taken all day to make those salmon volovants and I couldn't resist it. There was a whole lot of trays on the counter and I just went swish, swish again and sent all the rest of the salmon volovants flying. So when I was um, in court, I was... Hard with we malicious damage. salmon volovants. And my barrister, who's a senior academic or became a senior academic at New South Wales Uni doing it pro bono, as our mates always did, argued that you... It was an illegal charge because you can't be malicious to a salmon volovant. But um, he lost the case and I got 12 days jail in Malawa Women's Prison um, 
Yes, for salmon. So I didn't dare tell the other prisoners because, you know, people are in there even for things like murder and drugs and things. Mm. So I said I was in there for parking fines. Nadia, let's go back to the precursor of that, the tomato throwing incident in May 1969. Tell us about that. Well, I have a bit of a track record here with throwing food. In brief, the Sydney University Regiment was coming onto campus for what was a graduation ceremony. And the person speaking at the graduation ceremony was going to be the person called the capital V visitor to the university, who was the governor of New South Wales, the VC winning Sir Roden Cutler. But though he was coming in civilian dress, he was not coming in a military um, format or way, he was going to inspect the Sydney University Regiment. So those of us who were against the war, were also against the idea of having a military presence on campus. That same regiment earlier in that same year had attacked demonstrators and had, in fact, bayoneted one member of the Sydney left. So we felt pretty tense about the regiment. So on the day I was with the boy who'd been um, bayoneted and a very mischievous gay companion. It was the day after my birthday, my and I think I was still a bit drunk from the night before, we went back to the pub early and outside the shop near the pub they were, they were cooking tomatoes on special. So the boys bought them because they knew that engineers and college boys were going to be throwing a lot of food um, at the left during the meeting. Boys never have bags to put things in, so they put these tomatoes, four of them, rather squashy, in my shoulder bag. So we get there, the demonstration um, against the regiment unfurls. Um, the right wing were throwing things like full garbage bins full of water at the left that day. The governor arrived. I couldn't see him, though he was a very tall governor. Um, over the heads of all the crowd, I couldn't see him. I could barely see the regiment. Unlike Meredith, I'm completely not a sporting person. I couldn't throw a cricket ball to save my life. But the tomatoes were getting very soggy in my bag, so eventually I did throw one and then another into the air, not really seeing at all where they went. Later it was reported that the governor had been hit by a tomato and stupidly in the pub showing off with um, an agent provocateur friend egging me on, I told the journalist Mungo McCallum, who wrote a comical um, column for the Australian under the name of Martin Collins, but I knew Mungo was a mate. Um, I confessed to being the girl who threw the tomato just as a funny thing for him to put in his column. And, of course, um, the heavens unfolded and soon I found myself hauled up before a thing, a star chamber. And you also were hauled up before the vice-chancellor, well, weren't you? And, and, and he asked you if you'd thrown the tomato at the governor, to which you said no, because quite Truly, you hadn't been aiming at the governor at all. You'd just thrown it. And then you, in addition, got charged with lying to the Deputy Vice-Chancellor. Yes, so it was the charge of lying that actually upset me more than the charge of the um, tomato um, throwing because I pride myself on not telling lies. Mm. And um, I hadn't, he'd asked me, he said it, he phrased it, did you or did you not throw the tomato at the governor? And I said no because I didn't throw it at anybody in particular, but I had claimed that I had done it and it was possibly my tomato, though, as I say, there was a lot of fruit going through the air on that occasion. 
Meredith and Nadia, both of you, you start the book by writing about your experience last year. You're both now in your 70s and you start the book by writing about attending a Black Lives Matter rally in uh, June or July of last year. And I was wondering, what is your advice for young protesters today? There's a lot of things to protest about, climate change, Black Lives Matter, refugees, there's a whole raft of issues. What have you learned over the years and what advice would you give to a young activist today, Meredith? Oh, um, I am in, in awe of the young activists today. It is very hard to do what they're doing. Um, the issues are not as stark as they were in our day. Uh, we're not in the middle of a war where 400 Australians are killed or we're not uh, hosting all-white racially selected teams. Uh, with things like climate change in particular, it is such a difficult uh, subject to even talk about actually it's it's very complex um so i just my advice to young protesters today is keep it up don't be downhearted try to be um uh what's the word creative in in what you do um continually um putting up graffiti and uh, having sit-downs won't necessarily get the media attention that you need to do. Uh, you need to be thoughtful about how you're presenting your cause. Um, but really, as I say, keep it up and also try to have some fun along the way. If you get too serious and too distressed by what you're doing, um, you won't last. You'll burn out. So you really do need to... And have some fun along the way. To close, I've got a couple of questions which I'd like each of you to answer. I'll start with you, Nadia. You two have chosen different paths for your activism, and I know, and you write in the book about the enormous impact that those activities in the 1960s, that radicalism, has had on both of you for the rest of your lives. As I say, you've chosen different paths for your activist careers. Meredith, for you, academia and then politics. Nadia, for you, it's been writing. Starting with you, Nadia, has your chosen path enabled you to achieve social change in the way that you hoped to as that idealistic student back in the 1960s? Well, to a degree, um, I would hope so, particularly perhaps in my children's books. So I don't go out looking for issues to put into books. I don't insert my politics into my books. But because of who, who I am, I've ended up writing The House of Was Eureka, which was about an anti-eviction battle. I've written The Blooding, which is in, um, about environmental causes. Um, I've written history books that hopefully present the invasion um, in a truthful fashion. Um, I've always believed that if you're going to try to change someone's mind, it's better to try to change the mind of a young person than an old person because old people are set in their way. So I would hope that through my writing, um, even the biography of Charmia Cliff, because she was a transformative radical of the 60s, I hope that I've been able to express some of those views and get them out to a wider audience for people to make their own minds up. Meredith, what about you? You've, cho you've chosen uh, academia and then obviously a, a life in politics. Has that enabled you to do what you set out to do in the 60s, what you hoped to do with your life? Uh, look, I, I am just always amazed when I listen to Nadia. We are such very, very different people. 
she's a bit of an introvert. She loves nothing more than sitting at home writing a book. I'm very much more out there in the, in the community and we've chosen these very different paths in life but, uh, you know, still very, very close friends after 50 years. Mind you, we've had our differences. <laughs> um, but, uh, in fact, writing the book was really interesting. We had no argument at all except about what font to use because Nadia is unfortunately Times New Roman and I'm not. But we are such different people. I ended up leaving academia uh, and going into Parliament because I was an activist and wanted to be able to change people's lives through uh, the parliamentary process. And do have did I succeed? Yes. Yeah, so you can look at a whole lot of little things that you manage to get done and sometimes you'll see a bit of legislation and you'll remember the six months it took you to badger people about getting that bit in there and things. So uh, you do lower your you do lower your, um, your 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 aims as you get older and you recognize that you're not going to be able to make a huge difference. But a small difference along the way is really what I hope I've been able to do. And uh, in the book, actually, um, one of our, well, um, Jeff Robertson, when he's thinking about his life too, he says, well, we were, on the right, we were on the right side of history. And I do like to think that I've always been um, on the right side of history. <laughs> Congratulations to both of you for Lives Well Lived. Thank you for this wonderful book and I wish you all the very best with getting out there and getting that message out there. And thank you both so much for speaking to me today on Books, Books, Books. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Nicole. It was, it was great fun. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.